It's Philosophy Talk. In these troubling times, how can the arts and humanities keep us both thoughtful and cheerful? We asked some of our favorite Stanford colleagues to tell us what's been inspiring them. There's a different kind of contact that we can have. We can establish the contact of human minds at the spiritual level through writing, through radio, through engaging with ideas. Watching a narrative happen in fiction is practice for trying to figure out what kind of real world story we're living through. Any story that will somehow in the most minimal way reveal to us the invitation or an index of identification is a good thing in this uh, era of lockdown. Join us for the first of two episodes exploring how insights from the arts and humanities can help us cope with difficult times. Comforting conversations. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from our respective shelters in place via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're presenting the first of two episodes featuring comforting conversations. We'll be talking to some of our favorite Stanford colleagues about how the arts and humanities can provide comfort, connection, and common purpose in a world of social distancing. There's actually quite a long tradition behind that. The Roman philosopher Lucretius, for example, spent many lines describing the plague of Athens. And the point was that if you become a good atomist, even plagues won't trouble you. So philosophy has been on the job of soothing anxious souls for centuries. And since Lucretius's book was actually a long poem, literature has been on the job for centuries too. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to check in with some bibliotherapists to learn more about literary medicine. She files this report. Before Bidjal Shah prescribed books, she worked as a banker at Deutsche Bank. Money, notably, is rarely considered healing or therapeutic. During her maternity leave, she enrolled in evening classes in psychodynamic counseling and psychotherapy. As a part of her training, she enrolled in therapy herself. And what I found was that I would be reaching out for literature every time I had a session she turned to Greek literature for the metaphors. A day came out on the mountain. Narcissus was driving and netting and killing the deer when Echo saw him. I then started exploring this further and I thought, actually, there's something in here. There's something quite powerful in terms of readers connecting with the literature, connecting with the characters. A few years ago, Shaw launched a book therapy practice, and now she prescribes people books to read to support their mental health and well-being. This concept isn't new. The idea of bibliotherapy goes back to ancient civilizations that deemed libraries centers for healing. Aristotle described the therapeutic power of books. It's been something that we've been doing for millennia. And more recently, it sort of really took hold in World War One, especially when you know you had soldiers who were managing a lot of post-war trauma and books were a phenomenal source of comfort for them and you would see you know medical doctors prescribing literature. Shah says during this pandemic people are again turning to books. Her main job is to help people find books they can relate to. She prescribes Julia Cameron's The Creative Life, a guide for people looking to pursue art while sheltering in place. Creativity, like human life itself, 
begins in darkness. And my groans pour out like water by Francis Bloom, a poetry collection that deals with grieving. My love, are you drinking from the sweet waters of the far north? Or are you on the path of an old drive with a great herd by your side? She suggested the philosophical memoir, A Second Mountain, The Quest for Moral Life by David Brooks. Nietzsche says, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know what your purpose is, you can handle the setbacks. The biggest thing Shaw has noticed is that people are searching for the intellectual and existential deep books. All the stuff that happened nationally a few weeks later kind of happened here first. Chad Perman, a therapist based in Seattle, prescribes books as well, and cinema. His office is less than a mile away from the nursing home where some of the earliest COVID-19 cases in the U.S. were reported. We were kind of half living our lives like normal and trying to just hope it went away and then also trying to be more cautious and then the panic buying. Herman says at first people looked for existential books and movies, but now he says people he works with are actually less focused on understanding the mysteries of life. People don't have a lot of capacity right now. Um, they just are pretty overwhelmed. His clients are more interested in using cinema to escape or remember moments that made them happy. Something they watched that uh, really resonated with them, you know, even stuff like, yeah, I used to watch this movie with my dad. I'm just really missing not being able to see my dad right now during all this. Herman has also been turning to movies he's always loved, like The Tree of Life, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and Moonstruck. But what he tells every client is, if you're not ready to read the Canterbury Tales or watch Inception, you don't have to. If nothing else, please, <laughs> please give yourself a break. Please be gentle on yourself. It's okay to not really know what the right thing to do is right now because there's not a right thing to do. Bibliotherapy can help, but therapy can be expensive. We can prescribe ourselves artwork too. Sometimes all we need is to try and remember books we already have on our shelves. I, I returned that book. I remember it very specifically. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks so much, Holly, for that educational and therapeutic report. I'm Josh Laddie. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today we're beginning a series of comforting conversations about how literature and the arts can soothe our anxious souls. Before we hear from our other Stanford colleagues, there's a book that I'd really like to talk about. It's The Decameron by Giovanni Boccaccio. Ah, oh, fantastic. I love that book. A hundred stories over 10 days. Right. And it's in the aftermath of the plague in the 14th century. So all of these 14th century nobles go out to an estate and they decide to tell each other stories. And then we get this frame story around all these different little stories about the plague. Right. And one of the things I love about it is that the way in which that frame proceeds with Boccaccio talking about all the different strategies that people adopted uh, for dealing with the plague and for understanding the plague. I mean, one thing that leaps out is that he says that they all died in roughly the same amount, regardless of what they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very fatalistic. Right. Uh, the thing I love is that, you know, he's very subtly poking fun at a certain kind of religious framework where some of these people were saying it's a punishment from heaven. And then he'll say, of course, you know, of the people who held these opinions, not all of them died, but neither did they all survive. Right. I think that skepticism about sort of theodicy and also about clergy kind of runs through the whole thing. Like, clergy do not come off well in these mm. stories. And in fact, I noticed that a lot of the stories are kind of explicitly moralized by the storytellers. They'll sort of tell you the, the moral of this story is that you shouldn't think that women are chaste all the time. Or the moral of this story 
is that uh, if you're going to tell a lie, you better be really clever about it. How, how seriously, actually, do you think that we should take the moralizing? Like, is that all meant to be read just literally? Is some of it ironic? I think it's a great question, because if you think about what Boccaccio says right at the end in the epilogue, he says, you know, these were stories told by young people, but they were old enough to know that you shouldn't get carried away by stories, right? You shouldn't uh, base your beliefs about the world and human nature and how things go on mere fiction. Right. And, and he also right. says in the epilogue, no good word ever improved a corrupt mind, no bad word ever corrupted a, a good mind. So so I think, you know, we maybe should take uh, some of these morals with a grain of salt, maybe not all of them. But I think that's part of the difficult work that these stories are requiring from us. I mean, he, he, here's one example. One of the characters in the Decameron, Emilia, there are, t there are 10 young folk who get together and basically shelter in place together and tell these stories. Uh, she tells a number of stories, two of which are totally in contradiction to one another. And one of them is basically saying, you know, wives should be submissive to their husbands and do whatever the husbands say. And the other story is saying wives should stand up for themselves and not just be pushed around. And so we actually have worked to, you know, if you just read the stories in a kind of passive way and say, okay, yeah, you know, that's the moral of the story, I get it. You're not doing all the work I think Boccaccio wants you to do, and, and thereby you're not allowing the stories to fine-tune your capacity for ingenuity. So that was a plague. We've got a plague now. Like, are there any morals to be drawn? Well, I do think we wouldn't do badly to carry over the amused skepticism about uh, this being a punishment from God. I mean, there was a you know, preacher who said it was we've got COVID-19 because of gay marriage. There was an Israeli rabbi who said something similar. And I think maybe we should be laughing at that the same way that Boccaccio invites us to laugh about this, that happening with the Black Death. Yeah, it does, it does drive home how connected we are with the past, that there have been like awful clergy for a long, long time. <laughs> and there have been people who think they have more control over their lives than they do for a long, long time. Yes, and to have that attitude to say, you know, we've heard that boring, that might actually be a healthy response. Yeah, I actually have another thing that I'd like to to draw from the Decameron, which is you might expect a bunch of really depressing stories from this like plague era literature. But in fact, you've got a, just a range, like some of them are depressing, some of them are just silly, some of them are sublime, but you have this whole range of literature and also songs. And so the idea that art can provide this source of like humanity and like maybe escape, but maybe also just keeping in touch with your human feelings. Like that is something that I'd like to take away from the Decameron. I love that idea because, you know, you've got a frame that's about the plague, but then the plague pretty much exits the scene. And what you're left with for the hundred stories are stories about funny stories, moving stories, tragic stories, powerful stories but they're just stories about human existence. And maybe that's a thing for us. You know, we, of course, it's good to spend time thinking about COVID and reading about COVID and watching uh, movies about plagues and so on. But there's nothing wrong with also uh, reading and watching things like Boccaccio, where, where these are serious entertainments. They're a kind of distraction from the plague, but they're not mere bubblegum. Right, they're they're keeping our brains alive. Our uh, our bodies have to stay healthy, but our brains also have to stay healthy. We got to keep our right. ingenio going, right? And the sociability part that these stories bring the group together. We we don't just sit and watch our show 
uh, and that's it. We often recommend it to other people and we want to know what they think about it. And, and we exchange anecdotes and stories. And maybe there's a little bit of that same ethos that's still with us today. We're, yes, we're all stuck in our own houses, but it doesn't mean we can't come together over beautiful and powerful works of art. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org. 